because in the early days, they were persecuted. A quick reading of scripture would tell you they were, they were person non grata. They were not fitting in with anyone. The traditionalists didn't like them. The, the Romans were, were not sure where they stood. And they would have faced many hardships. But Luke was commissioned by a wealthy man to get to the heart of the matter, to, to uncover through eyewitness accounts what had actually gone on. And so we've read about Mary and Joseph, and we've read about cousin Elizabeth, and we've read about angels comforting them, and them journeying now towards an unexpected birth. And today's message is essentially, in Luke's words, uh, that which was spoken by the angels. It's going to be good news, great joy for all people. And let's read it together and, and kind of then afterwards focus on, on the good news and the great joy and all the people. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration with Quirinius, who's governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Let's just pause here and just kind of imagine a very real Roman Empire that was so large that they could say, well, we pretty much are the world. In their minds, they were like, we're going to number everyone in us, which is us, which is the whole world. Uh, a, a oppressive, large, administrative, and warlike kind of government that was in charge at the time. Let's keep reading, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't uh, joined us the weeks before, this is a decidedly awkward moment. They're not married yet, but yet they're committed to be married. She's with child, and everyone knows who did it. It's obviously Joseph. If he didn't do it, he wouldn't be on the scene, right? He would have had all kinds of grounds to disappear and say, well, something happened here without my knowing of it, and I'm out of the scene. The fact that he's sticking around means that clearly he was the one who had jumped the gun. And rather awkwardly, they're trudging towards the hometown, knowing that everyone's going, hey, hey, guys. I mean, they wouldn't have been the only people to ever have done this. But what made it decidedly awkward is the reasons they gave were, no, 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 we're still together. It wasn't me, but we're still together. Why? Well, it's because God is being born. And everyone's like, wow, that's a unique line. Hadn't heard that one before. You having a child before being married, but God's involved in all of this. Interesting, interesting story. Let's keep reading from verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Up until now, the story is going quite well. They're in a town, they're in Bethlehem, but the clincher kind of twist is that it's in a manger that he's laid. There's no place for them in an inn. What's up with that detail? Why, why would that be included? Why is that important? I'll leave it for now, but we're going to come back to that later. Verse 8, the scene changes. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. We're zooming out a bit now, and in the fields are shepherds. Um, these shepherds probably were sons of shepherds who were sons of shepherds that were sons of shepherds. They're on the night shift uh, taking care of valuable 
um, you know, flocks, uh, indication of wealth at that time. And I don't think they would have bumped into too many angels. You know, when the father was training up the next generation, there wasn't sort of like a, hey, by the way, there'll be some angels every occasional night. Uh, look out for them. It's quite exciting. I dare say these guys were in the nitty gritty of life, you know, on the lookout for danger, training sheep to hear their voice. They, they, were, they were doing some hard things and all of a sudden their lives got totally disrupted. I don't know if you feel a little bit like that this morning as, as a South African. Uh, do you feel like you're just trying to get on with the nitty-gritties of life, trying to do your thing, and, and there's just been there's some hard things to get through? A global pandemic and the economic uncertainty that that brings. Um, the, the, the flow of electricity being uncertain. Just life not being easy, and yet a disruption here happening. But here's the difference. This disruption wasn't a disruption that we constantly feel, which is disruptions that take us downward. This disruption is one of hope. There's something breaking in here that's going to change everything. Of course, these hardened kind of shepherds who are on night duty uh, see an angel in glory, and they're full of fear. And so let's keep reading what the angel says to them in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Again, this sign was very ordinary. It's like there's been a child born. You're going to find a child. That's normal. But to say that it's lying in a manger is an indicator that this is not business as usual. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's as if this one angel who delivered the news just wasn't allowed to be alone. There was just too much excitement associated with this news. And the rest of the crew just bust into the room and were like, da-da! And they were the singing type. And so that's what they do. Introducing a whole dimension to life of glory. Something transcendent. Something that breaks into the, it's just us here knocking around, trying to make sense of the world. No, glory enters the room. Something of a vertical dimension that says, you're not here by accident. You've been created in the image of a God. Yes, you've lost your way like all of us. But yet he's breaking in. He's moving in to the neighborhood. One angel was not enough for that news. And they burst ranks and a heavenly host enters. What we're going to be looking at together briefly is just that one verse that the angel first declared. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Great joy that will be for all the people. So firstly, it's news. It's news. There's an historic event that's been announced Dr. Luke has interviewed the people, the places, the events. He's got timelines. He's telling you who the governor is. He's mentioning cities. He's saying, go kick the tires. Go have a look. It's an announcement. It's either true or it's not, but it's an announcement. It's an event. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm used to mediocre news, right? Just mediocre news all the time. You're just like, oh, gosh. There's very seldom something that grips you as Good news. In fact, it's all contested. It's like, no, that's fake news. You must hear the other side's point of view. And if you read the other side, it's like, oh my gosh, that, what, what, how, how do I know what's going on? Can I tell you that most religious news, when you gather and try and hear from people, most religious news is actually pretty mediocre. Most religious news comes to you and says, okay, I'm offering you an opportunity to get right with God. Here are the things you must do. Here are the steps you must take. Here are the words you must say. Here's what needs to be done to get yourself 
connected again to God. I don't regard that as good news. I regard that as very, very mediocre news, right? Because it's going to all rely on you to somehow get yourself back into the presence of God. He has an opportunity to earn your salvation, to earn your freedom. But this disruption into the shepherd's life, this angel gives something else. This angel doesn't give mediocre news. He gives good news. News. Good news that they had anticipated for centuries before. Verse 11 tells you why it's good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who's Christ the Lord. There's, there's one who's arrived who is a Savior. He's going to heal the brokenness, the disruption. All the disruptions of bad news that we hear over and over that are happening out there but are also happening in our own lives. There is one coming who will save us from those but in addition, he is going to be the Lord, the Messiah, the King of the kingdom that has been foreshadowed before. As people have looked forward to the future and said, oh, if only we could have a, a king who would bring justice, who would bring about the peace, the joy, the hope that we all long for, a kingdom of love. And finally, that Messiah is coming. And this Messiah is a gift. This Messiah cannot be earned. This is not a Messiah who represents to you the steps that you need to take. This is a Messiah who arrives and embodies the good news. You see, God isn't talking about love. He is love, and he's pursuing us in love. Most of the things in life, um, ask any farmer, obey a simple sow and reap principle. You need to sow in order to reap. But in this case, this is, this is God's favor being given to people. You're going to reap something you never sowed. You're going to get access to God through what he has done. And we've read it many times already, but Isaiah spoke about it. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is why it's good news. There will be peace that will never end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then it doesn't say, and you must do this. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And isn't this what has happened globally as we just look over the world, different nations, different people having this good news transform their lives. It'll be for all people. So what do you make of this news? Is it good news to you? Or do you see it as mediocre news? Do you still see it as something you have to do? Or have you seen it for the gift that it is? And if you've got questions, which I suspect you might still have, come along to Alpha in February and ask all those questions. So firstly, it's good news. That was the longest point. The second one is that it's great joy. It's great joy. Why is it great joy? What leads to great joy? Well, we see it, that the first sign was that there would be a child in a manger, but there's an, there's an impressive second sign, which is that there's a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, on earth, peace among those on whom he's pleased with whom he's pleased. See, great joy, I think, would break in if you knew that there was going to be peace, wholeness, integration, well-being, life as it was meant to be. If I asked you right now, is everything as it should be? You'd probably say no. Well, imagine if one day you could say, yes, everything is as it should be. On earth, peace among those with whom he's well-pleased. See, there's a problem which many of us are told. We're told that to be sophisticated, to really be nuanced in life, you've got to have a rather cynical view, basically. You've just got to be cynical. Anyone who makes any claim, you go, yeah, 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 just wait, just wait. That's sort of seen as a, a mature way to live. And so when someone comes in and says, there is a God who breaks in 
it can often be a massive obstacle. Our cynicism can kick in and be like, meh, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. But for generations, people have actually not been cynical. They've actually said, no, 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 let's roll up our sleeves. Let's look at the meaning of life. Where did we come from? What happens when we die? Uh, what's, what's purposeful? What's meaningful? What's truth? And the Greeks record a lot of the conversations. And there's a lovely painting done by Raphael called The School of Athens, which has all these Greek philosophers in it. And if you look at the painting, Plato's got his finger up, like he's almost just scored a goal. He's like, yes, his finger's going up. And what's communicated there is Plato saying, if you want to know the good life, if you want to know where, where the real good life is, you need, to, you need to study and try and figure out those endless principles, those timeless principles, and apply those. So he, he was a life of the mind is the way to live the good life. And next to him is Aristotle, and Aristotle is like, no, no, no. And he's got his hands out like this, and he's almost trying to touch the earth. He's kind of like saying, the five senses. How you live the good life is you pay attention to what you taste and what you feel and how you go about life. And then when you find good things, you work out what do they have all in common, and then you live the good life. Aristotle and, and Plato arguing amongst themselves around how to live the good life. The cynic looks at them and says, ha, we'll never know. <laughs> like, sorry, guys, not even worth looking at it, right? And I would suggest why we have that attitude is there's a lot to be cynical about. It doesn't take long before you find the corrupt person going on or the angle that was there. And so you can shrug and go, well, it's serving me quite well with where I'm at. But I would say we place way too much weight on ourselves to create answers to questions that do have an answer. At root, do have a God who has moved into the neighborhood in love. And although being cynical can protect our hearts, it doesn't allow us to live lives of love. But why I think I find myself being cynical, and you might be able to identify with this, is at heart we maybe don't see God correctly. At the end of the day, we've believed the lie that we can't actually trust God. God doesn't have our best interests at heart. That's where the problem is. So let's take the example of the manger. I've thought about this. The example of the manger. Think about Joseph and Mary. Firstly, awkward social situation. God picks them and says, okay, you're a child, Mary. Everyone's going to believe Joseph did it. He didn't, but good luck. And they go through all that awkwardness. They then travel a long distance, heavily pregnant. All the ladies that have experienced that know that that is not a pleasant experience. But at least they're going to give birth in a nice inn. No, no, no. Sorry for you. The inn is full. God's got a manger, like have the bunch of animals around in store for you. And you can sit at that and go, oh my gosh, isn't this typical God? Like, I mean, suffering upon suffering upon suffering. These are meant to be people that have been following God closely, but they're going through life as if it's some kind of like no pain, no gain exercise. And we think that's who God is. He's the grumpy headmaster who's lost the plot, joyless. But what if God was utterly different to that? What if God was the center of love? What if God shared that love with the world so much that he pursues us, pursues us into every circumstance we could ever find ourselves in? What if God moved all the way into the neighborhood so that we could never say, oh, God, God doesn't understand. God never would have done that. God didn't come to the plushy, plushy sort of king's palace and live as a prince and then, and then you know, show us, hey, I care about you. No, he moved in all the way into the neighborhood, into a manger. The analogy I thought of is that um, in January, every, every year pretty much we bring out a group of students from the University of Amsterdam. They spend a week at the waterfront visiting Africa. Now, they've learned that you actually don't want to stay at the waterfront. You go to this magical place called Clifton, and they land at nighttime. They get Ubered to Clifton. They wake up in Clifton. They go, this is amazing. They then drive along the Atlantic seaboard, pull into the waterfront, go for lunch there, and they've got all the stores. They're like, Africa is pretty incredible. 
And what we have to say to them is, guys, V&A, Clifton, this is Cape Town light. And Cape Town, let me tell you, is South Africa light. And South Africa is actually Africa light. We have to kind of like let them be aware that, that what they're experiencing is not what your typical person experiences. Now, I think you'd say they haven't moved all the way in. And I don't think you could ever say that about God. When God arrived, he moved all the way in. He, he, he was laid in a manger. He so came to identify with us. Plato was saying, let's, let's get the ideas. Let's get all the ideas. God would obviously be the highest idea, the good, glorious God. But he didn't stay as an idea. He came into Aristotle's world of our senses as a baby. And he lived this life, feeling that manger on his back. The real, the real world, the ideal became real. Our lives should celebrate a goodness of a God who was prepared to that, to do that. A God who it says created stars that sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. As a community, we long to see people set free, people healed, that we'd be a community of great joy as we witness God moving into the neighborhood of people's lives and changing them, giving us reasons to celebrate. God's the most generous, reliable, ever-present and strong person that's ever existed. For good reason, he's described as the good shepherd. And the, and the shepherds would have known that psalm written by David. And that's going to be the psalm we study on the 7th of January when next we get together. We're going to look at this good shepherd and meditate on him. I could say so much more about why God is the source of great joy. He offers forgiveness, restoration, purpose. Good news of great joy is found in him. And can I tell you, if you aim for joy... Honestly, aim for joy. Go for it. Go for it. Try and make that the aim of your life. You're never going to get it. But if you aim for God and the kingdom and pursuing him, joy comes as a glorious byproduct of something bigger. We were designed for joy, and it's a gift we can receive. We're going to respond soon with that response song, joy to the world, joy to the world. Repeat the sounding joy. If you're new to the Bible, I recommend you keep reading Dr. Luke. Um, one chapter you might want to start with is chapter 15 of Luke. He tells a parable of things getting lost. And he talks about a, a lost um, sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son. And in each of those stories, when that lost item is found, when that lost person returns home, there is a celebration. Above the muttering of all the religious people with mediocre noise, there is a celebration. That goes on. We need to insist on celebration rather than cynicism. I want to read to you from John Tyson. He's writing from an American point of view, but I think it can be true of us. Cynicism is killing our nation. It's destroying our hearts. It's putting us in a place where we cannot appreciate the joy that comes from the good news we've been given. But God has an antidote to cynicism. His presence, his redemption, his fullness of joy. May celebration overflow in your life and resist the cynicism we face today. It's good news, great joy for all people, for all people. You'll notice that the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, Paul, there's the catch. Who is God pleased with? Who is God pleased with? Well, quite simply, it's people who've accepted the gift of Jesus. It's people who've accepted the favor of God, reaping what you don't sow. His son Jesus wouldn't stay in a manger. He would go to a cross on our behalf, inviting us in to the love of God purchased for us by him. We give him our rebellion. We receive the loving embrace of the Father, the Son, and the comfort of the Spirit. 
And can I tell you, this has the opportunity that, that everyone is available, it's available to everyone. We're going to watch a video now. Um, and this individual, Gulam, was my boss. Can you believe it? He looks like he's 18, but he was my boss. And Gulam uh, and I lectured together at GCT. I would say Gulam is probably, I don't want to exaggerate here, but in the top 100 of people that understand international financial reporting standards. I know that makes him a huge celebrity in your eyes. I mean, IFRS, that is, that is unbelievable. But let's say, if, he, if, we had an, if we had a South African accounting team, Gulam would be close to being the captain. Okay, sits on various boards of directors, despite looking 18. Gulam and I worked together, and he'll tell his story, but if I had to tell you years ago that he would be one of the people that the good news of great joy broke into. I wouldn't have at all believed it. But it has happened in his life. And I'd love you to join me in watching this video of Gulam's story as he accepted the good news and experienced great joy. My name is Gulam Modak. My name is Gulam Modak. By way of introduction, I grew up in a Muslim home. I think I was about six or seven years old when I started having this real anxiety about whether I could live up to God's standards. But it was also just easier to keep my mom happy and try and be a good Muslim boy. It was really in 2003 when my mom passed away that I started drifting from Islam and explored other faiths, no faiths. Alcohol became a big part of my life. I think a lot of that was to try and numb the anxiety that was always bubbling beneath the surface. On the face of it, I was doing well socially, academically, professionally, but I think I was always searching for someone or something. I think there are four main events that shaped that search. The first was London in December 2008. I was on holiday but also having a bit of a rough time and a Christian friend of mine who had no idea of any of that sent me a message one day saying that he had been reading the Bible, he had been reading these verses in Matthew 11 and thought of me and was sharing. I think it's really incredible that my first exposure to scripture were those verses in Matthew 11 where Jesus is calling all those who are weary and heavy laden to him and to come and find rest in him. And I remember at the time that those words comforted me. And I think they're just an illustration of the power that scripture can play in our lives, even when we don't fully understand. The second key moment was in December 2015 in UCT. Uh, one of the guys that I was working with gave me a Bible at the end of the year as a farewell gift when he left. Uh, we'd been chatting about Christ throughout the year, and I certainly was curious. I still think it's a ballsy gift to give someone a Bible, particularly if you are reporting to them. And I didn't really do anything with the Bible at the time or for a long time thereafter. But as I reflect back, I think working at UCT has been so good for me. I got to work with a few Christians, some common grounders. It was really in the ordinary day-to-day -day grind of doing work life together that we formed relationships, they shared their faith with me and were really just faithful in joining God in the work that he was already doing in my life. And I think this is just an illustration again of the power of healthy community in our lives. The third key moment was in March 2018 in the Maldives. I went off on holiday. I'd been having these really bad nightmares before I went off on holiday. And one night in the Maldives, I dreamt about Jesus. A uh, picture, if you will, the scene of all my childhood fears being played out. And overlaying that, really just this bright, light, warm, uh, compassion and love and Jesus' presence and him speaking into my fears, saying that I shouldn't be afraid because he is with me. Uh, I think it's like the story of the woman whom Jesus meets at the well, a place of her pain and shame that becomes the place of her redemption. And that's how it felt for me. I, I, I certainly felt that something had shifted 
in my heart. But on the strength finders, uh, deliberativeness is one of my key strengths. So it takes me a long time to think through stuff and process. So I came back home, I chatted to some people, started processing my experiences, and I started visiting Common Ground Rondebosch a bit more often. I also started reading the Bible that had been sitting on my desk unopened since 2015. A really cool story about the Maldives is that after I'd come to faith, I was watching this video about praying for the Maldives. And in that video, a Maldivian woman is praying to God that he would reveal himself to people in the Maldives through dreams. And that was my experience. And I think it's really just such a great story, speaking to the power of prayer in and over our lives. So on the face of it, it seemed like things were going well. I was leading a large department at UCT. I'd also been to the Maldives and Paris and Hungary in 2018. But in October and November of that year, I was in a really dark space. Uh, this is probably the first time that I really prayed to God. I just wanted it all to end. I wanted my life to end. As I look back, I realized that there was this battle that was being waged over my soul, and it was reaching its peak at that time. I was also starting to struggle at work. There was relational strain. I think all the stuff around reputation and the things that I had put my trust in were slowly being stripped away. So this leads me to the fourth stage in my journey, which is Thailand in December 2018. Uh, the darkness mostly lifted, and I went off on holiday again, this time to Thailand, and I really just spent most of that holiday reading the Bible. It's really on the beaches of Phuket that my head caught up with my heart. In accounting, we talk about seeing the big picture, and that's really how it felt for me. I got wrapped up in God's story, His love, His redemption, all the way from the Gospels through to the Old Testament, and really just fell in love with Jesus. Then at the end of January 2019, I raised my hand at church, I prayed, and I put my faith and trust in Christ. It took me a really long time to get there, but as I look back, I'm blown away by God's faithfulness to His plans and His redemption of me. I think some of my favorite verses in the Bible are from Genesis 1, and I think they really just capture God's working in our lives, His invitation and His revelation. And those verses are, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And I think those words just give me comfort that we all have the opportunity to behold Christ, His love, and His work in our lives, and His finished work on the cross, and to be like those first disciples, to drop our nets and to follow Him, because He is worthy, and it really is all about Christ. Yeah. Um, Gulam famously left a, a three-hour exam an hour early, handed in his paper after two hours, and the, and the in the lecturer wrote on there, you know, left an hour early, because if this guy fails and he complains, I'm going to tell him, well, you had an hour. You didn't use the hour. A gulam came first. <laughs> uh, amazing gift and a good, a good mate and an incredible story. Um, I said, gulam, great video. Well done. Just you've made all of us depressed with the quality of our holidays, though. <laughs> all the parents are like, ooh. <laughs> the single life. Um, He's just one of many stories in this community, people that have encountered the good news of great joy that's for all people. Consider yourself invited to do the same. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who became man to enable men to become sons of God.